Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Nazmo Dirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Chad. We're going to talk about what the death of Chadian President Idris Deby means for the country and for the Sahel and Lake Chad regions more broadly. On Tuesday last week, the Chadian army announced that Deby had died from wounds sustained on front lines. He travelled about 300 kilometres north of Chadian capital, Jemena, into the desert. There, Chadian forces were battling rebels that had been based in Libya. This is Chad's military spokesperson announcing Deby's death. Marshal of Chad, Idris Deby Itno, as he did every time when the Republic's institutions were seriously threatened, took the heroic lead in a combat operation against terrorists who had come from Libya. He was injured in the engagement and died after being brought back to N'Djamena. Deby had ruled Chad for more than 30 years. He'd won his sixth consecutive election only days before his death. It's not so unusual that he was on the battlefield. Over his years in power, he'd survived several rebellions and frequently made appearances on the front lines. Just last year, he led an offensive against Boko Haram militants around Lake Chad. The rebels that eventually killed him were a group called the Front for Change and Unity in Chad, FACT in its French acronym, one of several Chadian insurgent groups based in Libya. The government and parliament have been dissolved, and a military council headed by General Mohamed Idris Deby Itno, the son of the deceased Chadian leader, will govern for the next 18 months. So the question now is what comes next? Deby's son, Mehmet Idris Deby, has assumed power. He's formed a transitional military council comprising military and intelligence chiefs. The council says it will manage a transition to elections in a year and a half. And then earlier this week, facing a lot of international and domestic pressure, the transitional council appointed a civilian prime minister. But Chad's political opposition and rebels, they, they still reject the council as unconstitutional. They want civilians to have a greater share of power. Debbie's death also brings uncertainty further afield. Chadian forces are among the region's most capable. Debbie and the Chadian army have long enjoyed a lot of French support. Chadian troops lead military operations against Islamist militants in the Sahel and around Lake Chad. It's unclear if those troops will have to return home, and if so, what that would mean for those campaigns. 
To talk about all this, we're joined by Richard Moncrief, Crisis Group's Central Africa Director. Richard's calling in from Nairobi. He's spent years covering the region. We're also joined by Claudia Gazzini, Crisis Group's Libya expert, who will help us understand the Libya dimension. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, great to be back. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Tell us something about what happened and why was Debbie on the front lines? De- Debbie often fought at the front with his troops, or at least he was present there with him. He did last year on the Lake Chad when he and his army were fighting against Bokaram. So it's uh, not unusual. Not unusual for him, might be unusual in other countries. It was part of the way he presented his power. It was part of the way he projected his power. He presented himself as a military president, able to secure the country. As for what happened, well, he died in a province called Kanem, where fighting was going on with the fact rebel group, as you say. The official version is that he died in the fighting. Other versions swirl around, the usual rumour mills. None have been confirmed. So we don't really fully know the exact circumstances of his death. What happened after, as, you, as you've said, is that a military transitional council took power. Now, the military council is really a continuity with the Debbie regime. All the people in it were very close to the deceased president. They're obviously close to his son who leads it. And even also members of his family. The uh, leader of the transition, Mahomet Idris Debi, is not the only member of his family among the 15 of the uh, military council. The rebels then offered a ceasefire, but that's been rejected by the military council in no uncertain terms. Uh, They say they won't negotiate with terrorists. They obviously intend to continue the fight in the north of the country. A few other further developments which are very important is that protests have broken out in the main cities of the country, especially the capital and Jemena, of course, but other cities as well. We've had reports of two deaths, and these are ongoing. Now, those are protests against the military council. And this comes despite the naming of a civilian prime minister, Padmi Padake, who is from within the system, really. He's, he's well known to those who are close to the former president. So, Richard, we'll come back to the protests in a moment, but could you say a word or two about the rebels? Chadian forces were fighting, you know, when when Debbie went up to to be on the front lines. But who are they and what what do they want? Sure. Well, they're one of a number of rebel groups. And indeed, these rebel groups kind of recompose every now and then and and change acronym and, and move around and change their alliances. But they're one of the largest Chadian rebel groups present in the south of Libya. They previously operated in the Darfur area of neighboring Sudan, but moved to Libya when Chad and Sudan signed a peace deal effectively in 2010 and have since been in the country to the north of Chad. And some have occasionally intervened across the border into Chad, but uh, not in as significant a way as over the last uh, few weeks and months. They're often divided. At the moment, the fact has received, let's say, moral support from other Chadian rebel groups based in Libya. They all ostensibly uh, were, you know, devoted their lives to overthrowing the government in Jemena, uh, but uh, they were they were nevertheless very divided in general. The fact rebel group was hit quite hard by by the army when it advanced through Karnem and towards the capital, and it since retreated back up to the north, to the Tibesti province and to the Libya border to resupply. 
And they'll now be asking themselves whether they can bring in other groups and whether they can continue their fight and march onto the capital. So, Claudia, can we ask you to take us to Libya to better understand why this rebel group fact was based there and what is it doing there? Libya is a country full of foreign mercenaries, about an estimated 2,000. Chadian opposition forces are based in Libya since uh, the fall of Gaddafi. In particular, this group, FACT, that led this most recent incursion in northern Chad, was over the past few years allied with the coalition of Field Marshal Haftar, which is rather a paradox uh, because Haftar is nominally an ally of Idris Dibi. What we know is that this faction, FACT, was able to uh, launch this incursion in northern Chad with a good booty of weapons and equipment, in the sense that by guarding air bases and oil facilities that are under the nominal control of, of Haftar's coalition, they were also on the receiving end of good equipment provided also by the the foreign backers of Haftar. So we saw in the photos that have circulated of this incursion, cars, armored vehicles, weapons, uh, heavy artillery uh, mounted on these vehicles that are, um, uh, as the fighters say, uh, good in great working order and and latest technology. Claudia, so fact was one of the Chadian rebel groups in Libya, as you say, through its alliance with Haftar, it got very well armed, apparently, and that to some degree facilitated its return into Chad. But as you say, it's not the only Chadian rebel group. So is, is there a danger that some of these other groups, I mean, some of which have sort of said they support FACT's efforts to overthrow the, the Debbie government, is there a danger that some of those also go back into Chad? As far as we know, in the past few months, there were contacts being made between these various rebel groups present in Libya. Uh, let's remember, they don't always see eye to eye. I mean, they share a common cause, but, but over the past years, they've been divided over ethnic lines, strategic uh, ambitions. In some cases, there were assassinations of members of one group by members of the other. But what changed recently is that with the end of the war in Libya, there has been an attempt to bring these forces together. As far as we know, it didn't succeed. Uh, this attempt didn't succeed, meaning these groups didn't come under a common umbrella or a new banner where they're uniting, you know, uniting together. Uh, so to answer your question, Richard, uh, as far as we can tell so far, FACT is the only group that has actually taken arms and has launched this incursion. It could be that the other groups might decide to follow suits. But so far, we have no evidence that the other major groups like UFR or CCMSR or UFDD have actually taken that decision. But this, these groups together count about another 1,000, 1,500 fighters, um, and, and, and we can't rule out that they, they, they will. In addition to this, we also know that there is some local support in southern Libya for this for the cause that these opposition groups are are embracing, in particular amongst the Libyan uh, southern ethnic group called the Tebu, which live in, in this border area. They're in northern Chad, they are in Niger, and they are in southern Libya. And essentially what they share 
with the Chadian opposition is this sense of marginalization, having been forgotten. They all say, you know, our areas are rich. These are rich desert areas full of gold, uh, full of natural resources. And we are victim to a system uh, that has, you know, deprived us of our rights and our wealth. And so even amongst some Tebu in Libya, there is sympathy. Some appear to either be willing or preparing or actually having joined fact forces. Uh, so we also have to see how that relationship between Libyan Tebu, Chadian Tebu uh, and these opposition groups evolves. So Richard, can we bring it back to Chad? Obviously, there's a, there's a lot happening now. The death of, of Debbie, Debbie Senior, you know, obviously that's left in many ways a sort of big gap. There's this military council, as you say, but it's sort of generated a lot of opposition. You still have the rebels in the north. You know, some months ago, we wrote this report about the army itself and the coherence of the army and whether it would withstand a, a succession. H- how do you see the main risks in the weeks ahead for Chad? You know, a president has been in power for 30 years and he's just died. So, so I think it's no surprise if I was to say that this is a moment of uh, extremely heightened risk. Uh, but also, I think, worth underlining a moment of opportunity for a country that's been effectively under military rule for much longer than those 30 years. And this is how many Chadians, Chadian opposition groups, civil society and ordinary, also ordinary people see the situation at the moment. They're fearful. They understand the risks. Many have fled Jemena because they fear the advance of the rebels. Uh, but they're also hopeful that this might be an opportunity to change the system more deeply. And that's going to be a very important factor driving what's going to happen next. If we talk about the risks, uh, there's, I think there's three main risks. And as always in these situations, one of the core elements is, is all the things happening at once, as it were. And that's often what, what creates the greatest chaos and the greatest possibility for further deterioration. Now, the first one Claudia just touched on, and that's that the rebels um, replenish, possibly pull in other rebel groups from southern Libya and uh, advance further south. Now, that could really spark off violence. Civilians would undoubtedly bear the brunt of that, particularly if it reached Jemena. We don't know exactly what the French would do, who have a large military base in Jemena, but didn't intervene when fighting was going on uh, just before uh, President Debbie's death. So that's uh, another unknown, but a very important one. And the rebels will be mulling that one over for sure. The second risk, as you mentioned, Richard, is is in the army and is the question of splits, possibly within the military council, which would then have repercussions throughout the army, possibly lower down as well. That's happened in the past, uh, you know, fighting between units, not necessarily uh, coming from the generals, uh, and that's possible. Not everybody in the army is happy with the choice of the 15 members of the Transitional Council from what we hear. Now then the last risk, and this I think is one that's playing out right now, is the risk of the military council refusing to cede any power to civilians. And that's essentially what the protesters currently in the streets in the major urban centres are concerned about. And that's what they're asking for. The, the military council has just, you know, given a bit. It's, it's uh, offered a prime minister post to a civilian, although he's relatively close to the system. But uh, their attitude so far seems to be that they are going to 
continue to run the transition and hold the presidency. Now, they're under a bit of pressure. The African Union has stated that they want to see a, a, a transition to civilian rule as soon as possible. Um, the French haven't quite said that, but they're putting some pressure on as well. And the neighbours are putting pressure, particularly neighbours from West Africa, from the wider Sahelian region. Uh, their presidents visited Jemena uh, for President Debbie's funeral, and there was obviously a lot of uh, diplomacy going on then. And uh, they are said to have been putting pressure as well uh, for a return to civilian rule in the country. So, Richard, you've got the rebels, which you talked about, fact, potentially others. You've got the chance of disaffected uh, soldiers, factions in the army opposing the military council. And then you've got the political opposition and civil society and the people that have taken to the streets, as you say, in, in the towns and cities. Do you think there's a chance of a sort of united front emerging you know, against Debbie's son, against the, the military leadership as it is now? Yeah, that's a, that's a very important question. So far, the political opposition have rejected any seizure of power by arms, by violence, and, and thereby they've distanced themselves from the rebels. So their position at the moment is that they are protesting both against the seizure of power by the military council and the rebels' use of violence to get to power. And, and that's not entirely surprising. In 2019, when another rebel group entered the country with the apparent intention of trying to overthrow the government, the main opposition parties and civil society groups came out and said, yes, we don't like the system as it is in Jemena, but overthrowing it with arms is not the solution. So we don't see that kind of concrete uh, alliances emerge but it's, I think what is a concern is more the convergence of different things happening at the same time. If we were to see widespread street protests, uh, soldiers on the street putting down, uh, putting them down violently, and at the same time rebels marching on Jemena, then we really would be in a very, very difficult situation. Richard, can you tell us your sense of the implication and the risks in the region? When we look a bit beyond Chad itself, we see Chadian forces uh, deeply involved in a number of conflicts and relied upon heavily, for example, by the G5 Sahel and other forces. What do you think the implications are of the of what's happening currently? So as you say, Chad is, uh, Chad's army is deployed abroad to fight jihadi insurgents in the Sahel and also on the Lake Chad Basin and sometimes deep into Nigeria. There is a certain reliance on the Chadian army, which is considered reasonably effective, at least in, in battle terms, not necessarily in more strategic terms, but certainly on the battlefield. Now, there was already discussion about, let's say, overstretching the Chadian army. Uh, remembering that these rebels entered Chad before President Debbie's death, so there was already this question of pulling back troops from the Sahel or possibly not deploying into Nigeria, which is a, a current plan, in order to reinforce the Chadian army fighting those rebels. So that, if you like, is the most uh, concrete and immediate concern that neighbours have. Now, more widely, I think there's two things we should consider. One is what it implies to the region, of course, depends in part on what happens in the country. And, and that could be different next week. It could be different next month. So uh, highly unpredictable. And of course, if Chad were to fall into further disorder, then I think that would be evidently bad for the region. The, the other question, short of that scenario, I think the other question is, 
the extent to which the engagement of Chad abroad, both militarily and also diplomatically, Chad has made a huge surge diplomatically, grabbing some really top posts in uh, African diplomacy over the last few years, whether that was simply the strategy of President Debbie and whether it would continue um, with his son, with a civilian president or whatever is now uh, in store in Chad, or whether they would take a different approach and be less less oriented towards this military diplomacy and perhaps uh, have another strategy, perhaps a more internally focused strategy. And that would have implications uh, both diplomatically and militarily for Chad's neighbours. And Richard, just practically, I mean, do you, do you think if, let's say, the several thousand Chadian forces are taken away from the fight against Boko Haram, for example, or from the G5 Sahel, uh, a lot of this is in the tri-border area against the, you know, the local Islamic State, affiliate, or even from MONUSMA, the UN mission in, in, in Mali. I mean, do you think practically that's going to make much of a difference? If we're just talking about pushing back on these jihadi insurgents, containing the problem, making it manageable, then yes, Chad has been very important. They're, they're engaged in the MNJTF, which is a multinational uh, task force that intervenes around Lake Chad Basin. And um, one uh, person I interviewed a year or more ago in Jemena just said to me, yeah, don't, don't worry, the MNJTF is very easy to understand. It's an invitation for the Chadians to go and fight in Nigeria. So, so it is very Chadian focused. And if you just have the limited target of containment, then yes, the Chadians are very important. Of course, that raises a question of a much broader political strategy and pulling in troops from a neighbour is, is unlikely to help with that per se. So, Claudia, could we come back to Libya for a moment? Obviously, we've often talked about, a lot of other people have talked about the instability in Libya spreading south into the Sahel, you know, its implications for sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and in some ways, what's happened over the past week is, you know, yet another example of that. But could things work the other way as well? Does Debbie's death have implications for Libya itself? How the situation in Chad evolves will directly impact this transition. Uh, in the sense that if this confrontation between rebel groups based in Libya were to continue, were to worsen, were to intensify, uh, we're likely to see uh, movements of these forces in and out of southern Libya. And we could also see further destabilization in southern Libya if these groups or civilians from northern Chad were to uh, flow back into southern Libya in more numerous terms than they are currently. It'll also depend on what emerges in these upcoming weeks with regards to the complicity of Libyan authorities in the sense that so far it has been noticeable that both Haftar and his military commanders, which, as we mentioned, were the military coalition that these FAC rebels were operating under, have gone on radio silence uh, with regards to this incursion. In private, they've denied that they have anything to do with FAC. They've denied that the weapons that they used in this incursion uh, came from them. And the only public statement they made was to say, oh, we've sent, we've sent our military forces on the border area to guard the border or close the border or something to that effect. Because in some ways, the whole episode sort of exposes some of the contradictions of French policy, right? I mean, the, France is a huge supporter, has been a huge supporter of Debbie. In many ways, he and the Chadian army have been the linchpin of France's approach in the Sahel. And yet France has also been a backer of Khalifa Haftar. 
you know, who paradoxically was, you know, allied with some of Debbie's enemies and ended up giving them a lot of weapons. Yeah, absolutely. This is the paradox of the current situation as we understand it. And, I, you know, I want to underscore as we understand it, because a lot of things are, are not clear. And unfortunately, I think what, what this episode also underscores is that there was perhaps a missed opportunity in, in the past few months in the sense that um, this Libyan transition uh, is based on a ceasefire agreement that was signed last October. One of the main provisions of the ceasefire agreement was the departure of foreign forces. And we all knew that there were Chadian forces. The Libyan authorities and foreign stakeholders knew that uh, one important part of this um, uh, landscape of foreign fighters in Libya were the Chadians, but there didn't really seem to have been put uh, much effort put into asking the question of, okay, if there's an order to remove foreign forces from Libya, how are we going to remove these foreign forces from Libya, these Chadians specifically, who do not have a process in their own country to go back to? Because everybody knew that Idris Derby was was closing the door to negotiations with, the oppos- with these opposition groups. There was no space for reintegration or disarmament. And, and perhaps if, if there had been some more concrete planning rather than just rhetoric about the need to remove these foreign forces from Libya, perhaps we wouldn't have seen this incursion or these deaths and we, have, we would have seen an opening to, to, to talks. Who knows? Richard, if I could come back to you with the question, what do you think this means for the reliance on strongman leaders to carry out counterterrorism activities in the region? Well, I I think the first thing to underline is that what's happening in Chad is a multidimensional crisis. And indeed, this is true across the Sahel, in which jihadi insurgents Uh, which the West is so focused on, are only one part, and they're not always the most important part. So the irony is that uh, the West supported Debbie as, as you say, a strongman military leader in order to fight uh, jihadis, uh, but he was actually killed in a fight with the classic domestic opposition, armed opposition. Uh, So maybe we weren't paying enough attention uh, to some of the more political issues which were running their course, uh, either in Jemena or in southern Libya, as Claudia has described. If uh, a worst case scenario uh, came about in Chad, it would not be because of jihadis. It would be because of political fragility that strongmen leaders leave in their wake. The jihadis would come afterwards in an opportunistic way. So I think you can read just from there that we've paid too much attention to a very narrow slice of the problem. Now, in terms of the kind of uh, argument over over the strongman leader, we we see now he didn't build institutions. We see that simply in the uh, the fact that a military council has been able to overturn the constitution with such ease. Again, I'd come back to a very important point here, which is that Ordinary Chadian people, in, I, I think it's fair to say in their vast majority, as uh, while they do fear for the risk and they fear for the future, they also see this as an opportunity to break with um, a system of militarised, strongman, uh, one-party state. This is really important. You mentioned the French, who are the great supporters of uh, Debbie and have been, let's say, lukewarm so far in their criticisms of the military council. Well, they face a dilemma. In their strategy on the Sahel, they, the French talk a lot about encouraging better governance, 
um, encouraging more accountable governance as part of the uh, fight to restore order and push back on jihadi insurgents. Um, but at the same time, they have short-term priorities. And, you know, one of the big short-term priorities is troop generation. And uh, President Debbie knew this perfectly well, and he knew that he would gain friends um, if he were to offer uh, troops uh, in the uh, broader West Africa uh, sphere uh, for fighting against jihadis because he was responding to a very immediate concern of the French. Now, this is all going to come out uh, or, or this is going to play out because in France it's becoming a very important political issue. We've got presidential elections next year in France and the issue of proving that the French policy has brought some success but also uh, being able to answer the question of where's the politics, where's the better governance, where's the accountability um, is going to be part of the debate uh, that's going to run in France uh, for the coming months. So Richard, can I ask a follow up to that? So, so on the one hand, Debbie held power for, for 30 years. I mean, you know, he, he just, as we heard up top, he just won his sort of sixth consecutive election. He did plenty wrong, as you described, it's repressive, he closed political space, it was this very personalised rule, as you say, he didn't leave behind strong institutions. You know, like many similar rulers, he sort of shored up problems for later. But at the same time, for regional standards, you know, during Debbie's reign, Chad was reasonably stable. So what would you say to, to the argument that, that sort of Chad needs another Debbie, it needs another figure like that, that can have the sort of grip on power that he did? For 30 years, Chad had uh, some element of stability. It was um, rather peculiar. I think historians will look back and find it a, a strange time when, uh, when Chad, in part, in part, there were domestic uh, dynamics at play, but in part was a kind of landing pad for French intervention in the Sahel. And uh, that was uh, an aspect of its stability. But it is, you know, you're right, it's remarkable, for example, that there are no known jihadi groups active on Chadian soil, and there haven't been uh, for the last 10, 20 years. And that, that, is, that is in itself an achievement, I think. I mean, I think we, you know, we, we're in a different era. People want a change, and this is a very strong popular desire, and this is going to drive uh, a lot of what's going to happen. Uh, the other element is uh, the international... Uh, dynamics around this. I said that the French had been a, a little bit uh, lukewarm in their criticisms of the, the military transitional council. The Americans have called it out as a, a non-constitutional change of power, so effectively a coup. The African Union has uh, called on authorities to rapidly start the restoration of constitutional rules. So they've they've put that question of constitution in there as well. In the diplomacy, in the international pressure that's going to be put on the military council, the question of civilian rule, constitutional rule, um, by the way, according to the constitution, the head of the National Assembly or deputy should have taken over power. So this question of constitutional rule is unavoidable. And so I think that there are forces pushing back against this idea of a long-term military strongman. And I think they pose the question of how you create more stable uh, and functioning institutions in countries which are very poor, where uh, institutions are inherently uh, weak, education levels are low, poverty level is extremely high. How do you create institutions 
and respond to that popular desire for something that's more accountable for an end to 30 years of military rule effectively. Richard, that's a, a great note to end on. Thank, thanks so much to, to you and thanks very much to Claudia for both coming on. Really a great discussion. Thanks a lot. It's good to be on. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Naz. Richard, a fascinating conversation with our colleagues. What, what stood out to you? I mean, there was so much. There's, there's, you know, what comes after 30 years of Debbie. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's that and there's, you know, obviously comes at a time when there's an enormous amount going on in the region. But, you know, one thing that, that really struck me as interesting was that, you know, some, something that Richard said a, a few years ago, we wrote this paper that, that you know quite well uh, about the Islamic State and, and Al-Qaeda. And one of the sort of main arguments of that paper was that jihadist militants, you know, they tend not to start wars in themselves. You know, and that's for many reasons, but mostly because what they're selling doesn't sort of enjoy wide appeal in peacetime. Usually groups like that need conditions of war or need conditions of state collapse to, to, to thrive. And I think we've seen that in many different places. Now, you know, obviously we don't want to be you don't we don't want to be alarmist. But clearly the greater danger for Chad was not Islamist militancy, as Richard said. The greater danger was this sort of traditional traditional conflicts, traditional uh, intra-elite power struggles. And now, you know, we'll see what, what happens in the weeks ahead. Of course, we hope that, you know, the, 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 the new military council can, can open up political space a little bit, share power with some civilians, ideally, you know, reach some sort of ceasefire and get into talks with some of the rebel groups. You know, that's, that would be ideally what would happen. But clearly, you know, there's potential, potent, lots of potential for worse scenarios. And again, Islamist militants quite well positioned to exploit any, any instability that does result from that. Richard, if I could take a, not a contrarian position, but I think another perspective that that seemed important to me in, in Richard's comments was the ways that external investment in and prioritization of counterterrorism can change how we see a country and change how we understand the the risks that are posed by um, uh, the kind of leadership that that Debbie um, represented, and in a sense, I wonder if the the reliance on Chad's military and the reliance on Debbie's leadership for counterterrorism in the region also served to cause other countries to look away from some of the other dangers that were percolating in the country and in the region, that in a sense, CT was overvalued as priority in Chad. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And you're, you're absolutely right, of course, the, the, the sort of elevation in Western minds of, of Islamist militancy as a top priority, this view of Debbie as a counterterrorism partner, all the money that went into his army, you know, all that exactly, as you say, meant his allies probably didn't pay enough attention to some of the other things that were going on, some of the other potential problems. How common is that? Western leaders overlooking the flaws of their counterterrorism partners. Also, you know, I think it, as exactly as you suggest, the last thing we'd want to do now is sort of fall in the same trap of making it, making what's happening in Chad all about the danger of Islamist militants again, you know, especially when, when there's so much going on that people should focus on. You know, is, is the military council going to be more open to civilian rule? How much is it going to stick to the constitution? Will it be prepared to negotiate with rebels? As Richard said, there's a, a lot happening at the same time. I think there is still this sort of broader point about what it could mean for the region the Sahel, obviously, and, and, and even beyond the Sahel, I mean, the Central African Republic, which we didn't talk about, Sudan, what happens in Chad has traditionally reverberated in those countries too. And the region can sort of ill afford another 
major crisis and what, what has been, you know, despite all the qualifications that Richard was exactly right to point out, in what has been a, a reasonably stable, stable state. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Nazmo Dirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thank you especially to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or a review, and we hope you'll all join us again next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.